We've been in a series, it's the fourth week now, called Fear Yeah. So if you've looked on it online, this is a teaching about fear. And uh, when you talk about fear, most of the time people think you need to get rid of all fear. And there is a place of getting rid of fear. But this is a different kind of fear. And uh, if you think of everything, you know, like if you go to an Italian food place, if I said that right, you know, because sometimes you say like carne asada and people who speak different make fun of you. And um, they all know it's like this. Okay, but it's, we know what the meat is, right? And so, you know, it's like going to an Italian food place and saying noodles are noodles. That's how I look at it anyway. No, but they're different. And so when you start talking about fear or you even talk about love, there's differences of different types. And so we've been talking about this good kind of fear that the Bible talks about. So um, without reviewing stuff, we've talked about the effect of this fear upon people. When people lose this kind of fear, it talks about how they will just live all different kinds of ways. And uh, we talked about how this opens you up to the knowledge of God and how it will get rid of personal ambition so that you can live a focused life, you know, and follow God. And so if you will turn to Exodus 20, we're going to go back to that first scripture we read almost every week, these last four weeks. So if you're here, like in six months from now, we probably won't be reading this, but Exodus 20 and this has been our kickoff scripture kind of about this. We're going to read from the 18th verse down. But in the context, uh, you can see here that God was gathering all the children of Israel. They had just come out of Egypt. And God is now going to gather them and just kind of give them a little flash of his power. They're just going to see his power on display. They're going to sense his presence. They're going to see him as he is in a snapshot, but in all reality, not really how he is because we know no human being can see him in his full extent and live. You, your body would just melt. You'd go be with him. You with me? And so, but there's a lot of people in the world who live like there is no God and uh, once they have a taste of who he is, you know, like they give their life to the Lord and they, or have an experience with him, lives can radically change then. And so God was wanting to do that for his people who he chose here. And so Exodus twenty eighteen it says, now all the people witnessed the thundering, the lightning, the flashes, uh, the sound of the trumpet. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. So they saw up on this mountain what the Bible calls the glory of God that came like a cloud, not a regular cloud, but it was just power. This is where when you, maybe you've seen the movie, The Ten Commandments, when Moses came down and his face was shining and there was so much power on him, the children of Israel said, cover your face. We can't stand this. It's just there's, you know, there's power being radiated. And it was awe. It was reverential. And so this is when God's putting it on display for the people, all of them. It says then in verse 19, then they said to Moses, you speak with us and we will hear 
but let not God speak with us lest we die. They are totally in this situation where they're getting paranoid here in front of this major demonstration of God's power. And I would say this, no matter who you are, if you really saw who God was, there would be a tendency towards yikes. You with me? And so here they are, they've watched God do all these miracles in Egypt, striking the firstborn dead. And he protected them when they shed the blood of the lamb and all these different things. But God kept protecting them. They saw this, all these things. And they saw the Red Sea part. They never had this effect on them. And here they are, whoa. So this was not just a cloud like we're like, oh, look at the superstition mountains we text our friend. You see the clouds? It's beautiful. Oh, look at the sunset. Look at the clouds. No, this is not that kind of cloud. If you read through the Old Testament, this cloud of glory is the same one that appeared on the mountain when Jesus had been with his disciples and took Peter, James, and John up there. And all of a sudden this cloud came over and it's called the glory of God. And it said Jesus was transfigured. His whole body changed. He started getting white, glowing like an angel. And all three of the guys who had traveled with him, who saw the dead raised, blind eyes open, lepers cleansed, all of a sudden they're all on the ground, boom, afraid. And they're like, yikes. And the Lord had to lift them up and say, don't be afraid. But there is just something when you really see God for who he is, that it can induce a fear if you're not careful. And so they said, no, we don't want this. Verse 20 said, Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. Here is the bad kind of fear. The bad kind of fear is a terrifying fear that makes you want to run. Moses, or Moses, Adam and Eve, Moses wasn't in the garden. That's a different story. Um, but they were there, and they hid themselves from fear from God because they had sinned, they had done wrong, and they hid themselves. But God still came looking for them. But here Moses said to the people, do not fear. In other words, don't have that ty terrified type of fear where you run. For God has come to test you or to try you, and that his fear may be before you so that you may not sin. And a good way to say this, because sin just means miss the mark, to do what's not always right. And so he said, listen, I have appeared to help you see just who I am. That'll help you with your life. And uh, he said, so that you might have my fear. And this kind of fear is different than, because he wasn't like going, don't fear. Fear. No, he was saying that my fear, or literally a holy, respectful awe, like whoa. But in the context, what he's doing is he is setting up this thing where I'm going to be your God. I'm going to be with you all your days of your life. As you guys go in to possess the land, I'm going to be with you. So I want you to know how powerful I am, that I'm on your side. I'm with you. I'm the one who delivered you. I want you to have a right perspective so you can be in awe and recognize whatever you face, 
you face it with me. And here they are when it starts going down, they're afraid. But he's like, don't be afraid. I wanted you to go, whoa, and be in reverence, be in awe, so that when you do the endeavors of life that I command you to do, you're going to know I'm the one who's with you. I'm for you. There's a lot of power backing you. You with me? And so he was saying this here. And so when he talks about this kind of fear, it's not a paranoid fear. It's a reverential fear. It's really an unveiling of who God really is in real power and real might. And we need that desperately today, all over the place, not just in church on Sunday and not just you guys and not just me, but we, the United States, we, the world need this desperately to, you know, because psychology is not going to win the scientist. Well, let's just reason this out. I'll tell you what, you go look in the Bible when God manifested himself, people who were skeptics had to confront the issue. How did that happen? This is beyond the natural. There is a God, and he's powerful, and he is mighty. And when we don't see that kind of stuff, it, you know, Jesus didn't go into, say, go into all the world and wins people psychologically. He said these signs would demonstrate to the world things that so they could turn. And just manifestations of how powerful God is, whether it's just sensing him, whether it's him doing something, whatever it is, I mean, think about the first time the church did what they were supposed to do and preach. How did they win people? Did, did, did the disciples go, okay, there's 120 of us in the upper room. All right, here's what you do. You take a thousand flyers, you group, and you go to this neighborhood, and you guys go to this neighborhood and take a thousand flyers, and you guys go to this neighborhood, and we're just going to canvas the area, and then we're going to call a special meeting. I'm not against handing out flyers, because we do it for like kids' events and things like that, but they just followed God, and then God moved in such a way that a sound of a rushing mighty wind came. The Spirit of God, like this type of thing, fire fell, and it drew 5,000 people. It got their attention. They couldn't deny something was happening. Then Peter directed them to the Scripture and explained what was going on, but those people got a taste of how powerful and big God was before they even gave their life to him. I mean, if our building catches on fire, not naturally, but all of a sudden there's flames on it or something or a big cloud of glory, um, we're not going to have to hand out too many flyers. So we're just handing out flyers. And we could to direct people, and nothing wrong with that. But the fact of the matter is, wouldn't that do something on its own and then make them curious to hear what we believe, what the Word of God said? Even if you're a skeptic, you got to think, wait a minute. There's power on display. And so with this, we've been talking about various things, but I felt like, you know, in praying, maybe we should take this a little different direction because when you start talking about how holy God is, and he is, and how mighty he is, and how strong he is, 
and what he endeavors and wants to do, and then we don't have to beg him to do things. He wants to do them. You with me? I mean, because, you know, sometimes people beg, come on, do this, God. And he already wants to do these things. He wants to make himself known. He wants to do good things in people. And so turn with me to 1 John 4. Even though God is all-powerful and we should reverence and respect him, I think there is a perspective of approaching him when we know he's all-powerful and we know he's holy and we reverence him highly as a person who has come to know the Lord. There is an element of not having the wrong kind of fear, but having the right kind of reverence. So 1 John 4, and um, I'm going to read this verse, and it's probably going to be real familiar to people. Um, I'm going to start reading verse 18, 4, 18, 1 John, way in the back of the Bible, right before the book of Revelation. It says this, Verse 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear involves torment. Now, we've read scriptures where the whole church walked in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And it was a right kind of fear. And the Bible tells us, even in the New Testament, submit to one another in the fear of the Lord. So this is a different kind of fear. And he said this kind of fear involves torment. So if the type we're talking about in some way induces some kind of torment where you're like, oh no, I've got to stand before God. Oh no, I'm in trouble. That's the wrong kind of fear. That's not a respect that's properly placed. And so this scripture has been abused. Well, you know, if you just knew love, it would just cast out all fear. Well, you have to know what kind of fear he's talking about here. And what the fear is. Because notice... It says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because this kind of fear involves torment, but he who fears, or you could say this, he, he who is tormented. Where is torment here? It's, it's an internal thing in the mind. You know, a Christian could live tormented for a long time, over feeling like I'm just not perfect enough. You, no, you're not. Good news is nobody is. But you don't have to be tormented. Because he's talking about this kind of love, whatever this love is, will drive off this torment. So it's something about knowing this love that will get rid of this torment, this fear, wrong fear, produces a torment. Because he said this kind of fear involves torment. Do you think torment's of God? I'm just a child of God. No, he doesn't want, he wants you to be at peace. He wants you to be able to be comfortable in front of him. And he said this kind involves torment 
But he who fears has not been made perfect. Now, when it uses the word perfect, it's not talking about, wow, that's a perfect this, or everything's totally in order. The word perfect many times in the New Testament could very well be translated mature or developed. So you could say it like this. But he who fears has not been made perfect or got the right understanding of love. We love him because he first loved us. Now, if you read the context, he's talking about boldness in the day of judgment. You ever heard the scripture, as he is, so are we in the earth, that we might have boldness in the day of judgment? What torment does is make you feel like this kind of fearful torment. I'm just not good enough in God's sight. He's so pure. He's so big. And then it makes people have a fear about that day standing before God. And if there is any timidity about any of this in a believer, you're being tormented. And he said, if you understood this love he's talking about, it would drive off the torment. The problem about this love is we live in a society that likes a lot of feelings, so we will sing, come and hug me, Jesus. Just give me a big old hug. We just hug you, Jesus. Hug me back. You don't need that. That's not the love he's talking about. That's not the love he's talking about. It's not. Some people say, well, I just, when we're talking about the fear and reverence of God. When you know this, you'll respect him in a better way. Because when he talks about this love that drives out things, it's interesting how he talks about it. Everybody okay? And if, he, if you get rid of this torment, and it only comes from knowing his love. And so, so when you hear people say love, people say, well, I've been a Christian my whole life, and I don't even know if I believe God loves me. Anybody ever heard that? You can raise your hand. Anybody ever heard that? You might be raising your hand going, that, that's me. That's okay. If it's you now, it won't be in a little bit. Because uh, here's the thing. There are Christians that live for years with this obstacle waiting for some kind of hug or something from God to know that they now believe in the love God has toward them. Because we're looking at it totally wrong. I just don't know. You just need to have faith in the love of God. I just don't know if I believe that he loves me. I would say this to you. If you don't believe God loves you, I would say you need to get saved. Then somebody would say, but I am saved. but I don't know if I have faith in his love toward me. Right there, you know that person is confused. Point to your neighbor and say, that must be you because it can't be me. No, I'm kidding. Don't, don't. 
Don't do that. Because when people think of this, and, and there's so much... Well, I'll just be nice and won't say anything. Just go back and uh, read verse 12. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love has been perfected in, this, in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because... He has given us his spirit. How do we know we're in him? How do we know we abide in him? Because we're born of God, people who are saved. The Bible said his spirit. When people ask you, well, how do you know? You got any proof out there? My proof is right in here. The Bible said his spirit bears witness with my spirit that I'm a child of God. I just know it inside. And so I can't take and give that to you, but you can have it for yourself. But notice what it goes on to say. He's given us his spirit, verse 14. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son. Notice this phrase. The Father has sent the Son as the Savior or the payment for the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God abides in him. And he in God. So it's that same term. When you confess him, you abide in him, he abides in you. But then his spirit will witness to you that you belong to him. The very next verse says, and we have known. Not we're gonna know. We have known. What is it that we have known? And what is it? The next part says, and we have believed. What is it that you've known as a Christian and that you've believed that caused the Lord to come live in you and you to abide in him and then his spirit to live in you and witness to this fact? We have known and believed the love that God notices, believed the love that God has for us. Notice it says you've known and believed this. But how many Christians say, I don't, I don't know if I believe that God really loves me. But right here he said, every Christian knows this and believes God's love toward him. I wonder if I've been looking in the wrong place for the love. And not realizing, maybe I do believe in the love God has toward me. Everybody okay? Notice this. We have known. That's not we might, we have. If you're a believer, you've known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. Or you could say it like this, he who abides in this love. What is this love that he said I believed in, and I'm saying I don't know that I believe God loves me? When he's so powerful, but this love, if I could understand this love, it would drive off all torment. Well, man, I need to know this love. Back up to verse 9. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us. Stop. 
in what he's about to tell us, he's going to show us how he put on display for you, for me, for the world, his love toward you. He's saying, this is manifested. It was shown forth to the whole world. Notice, in this, the love of God was manifested toward us, toward humanity. How? You're telling me I believed it. You're telling me he's in me. I believe he's in me. I believe I'm born of him. But how in the world has this love been manifested to me? I don't even know if I believe in it. No, you're just confused. You've believed in it. You probably have strong faith in it, but you've been taught love is a hug. Love is a feeling. Love is a kiss. Love is flowers. Love is chocolate. Love is the movies. And I'm all for doing that kind of stuff, especially the chocolate. I don't need anybody to get me chocolate. I'll buy all my own chocolate. But that's not love. He said this love was manifested. This means it became apparent and it was seen. How was it seen that God has sent his only begotten son? What was manifest? The coming of his son. What did it manifest? It manifested the love God had toward humanity. Remember football today? Oh, don't act innocent there. I heard people talking about football. Remember when people used to put up in the end zone that famous scripture? Right? Revelation 17, 11. No, I just made that up. I don't even know what that is. John 3, 16. For God so loved the whole world that he gave... His display of love toward humanity is the giving of Jesus. No wonder I have believed in his love toward me. Simply believing in Jesus is accepting his love. Simply believing in Jesus is accepting his love. But when you don't understand what Jesus did, you could still be tormented. Because coming to the understanding of what God did in Christ when he gave his gift of love to humanity was to drive off fear. Because fear has torment. What do people get tormented over? Man, I did wrong. Oh my goodness, I haven't done right. Now I've got to stand before God. So now I'm serving him, but I'm tormented. But understanding, notice this developed love or the knowledge of it will drive off the fear. So there's something about the knowledge of what he did when he came. You're missing if you're tormented. So this, is a, this isn't the fear of awe. This is the wrong fear. Everybody alive? And so he said, notice this. In this, the love of God was manifested or seen toward us that God has sent his only begotten son. No wonder he said, 
you've known and believed the love God has to you. Because to get saved, you have to believe Jesus died, Jesus rose again. But the problem is, is if we think that's all it was, and we think we're just forgiven sinners, and we're still the same way we once were, we will be tormented. Because you'll say things like, yes, yes, I'm a sinner, but I'm forgiven. No, you're not a sinner once you got saved. So he's saying, you telling me you ain't going to sin? No, you may have just sinned, but you're not a sinner by nature. You're now a child of God. What if I came up to you and you had little kids and I said, oh, I love your, your kids. They're great. Look at these kids here. And what if I came up to your kid and said, your kids are just little sinners. <laughs> Boy, if I've ever seen some sinners, it's their kids. Oh, look at your kids, those little sinner kids. Oh, they're just little evil things, aren't they? Um, yeah, just drop them off in children's church. Let me talk to you, your little evil kids. If I said that to you, I'm thinking there's an old phrase, you need to have a little red flag go up, like, warning. So why are you allowed to talk to you yourself? like that about God's kid, who you are, if you've given your life and just say, well, I'm just evil. I'm just a sinner. I'm just a bad person. You know, that's just me. Um, if you're saved, don't talk to God's kid like that. You say, well, it's me. Yeah, but you're not your own. You've been bought with a price. You're his kid. And if I walk around talking about your kids like that, you should think but here we are talking about ourselves. Let's sing a song. I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. I'm a... What? You maybe were a wretch once. Somebody said, no, I've been wretched. You may act like it, but the Bible said that's because you're carnal, not who you are by nature. You're living like a mere man, but inwardly, the Bible said you were created in Ephesians 4.20, in true righteousness and in true holiness. You're identifying with your outward actions. You're allowed to keep those under. But that's not how God identifies with you. If you just went to God and said, I'm just your horrible child. Or I just called your kids horrible. That's more identifying to people because they go, how dare you talk about my kid like that? Sure, my kid's not perfect, but don't you call him that or her that. But then we're allowed to do that about ourselves or sing a song and then spew that all over everybody. And, but, you're, but if you're saved, you're God's kid. The Jews had some of this mindset when they had given their lives to the Lord. They were supposed to reach the Gentiles. In Acts 10, the Lord appears to Peter and has this vision and the Gentile or the Jews called the Gentiles, meaning us, if we, if, meaning if you don't have a Jewish background or were born to one of the tribes. And Peter had this vision, and the Lord said, "There's people coming. You're going to need to go with them. And uh, what I have called cleanse, do not call common and unclean." He said, "You're going to go to the Gentiles." And everybody had this idea: if you were a Jew, they're they're junk. And God said, listen, what I've cleansed, you do not speak that about them. But here we are saying, we're just not good. 
Well, what kind of, here's a thought. If you're the temple of God and God said he'd live in you and he'd never leave you, never forsake you, and he'd be in you always once you give your life to him. But he said that there's no human temple man can make that he, that's good enough that he'd be there forever. But then he said, I'll be in you forever and there's nothing you can do that I'll leave. Why? Because he made you a new creation by his own standards. So he won't leave you. When you sin, he won't leave you. I know people don't like that, but where in the Bible does it say he leaves you? When you sin and then he comes back. Sorry, you can't find a scripture in the New Testament like that. He's for you. When you do wrong, he'll draw you. Meaning you can go be with somebody who's unsaved, they can do the same thing. And they won't get drawn that way from the inside, but the Lord will deal with you because he loves you and doesn't want you to do those things. But notice this, because I haven't got really to my notes. Verse 10, in this is love, not that we loved God, Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son to be the propitiation, which is a nice word, for our sins. What does that mean? It means he was a payment to release you from your sins. Yeah, but I've been sinning since I was saved. He didn't provide for the forgiveness and the release of all sin up until the time you got saved. It'd be better to wait till right before you, you die. Do you get to be chancy? Yeah. Oh, that you know, would be a little, because uh, uh, that's where you get the best benefit. No, that would be like him creating the world to produce everything we needed to eat and to live on only up till... This year. Great. And there's people like, the world's going to end. We're going to run out of food. We're out of Do you think God made the world like that? So we're just going to run out? And then enough cows are going to fart, and all of a sudden they're going to change the atmosphere, and we're going to have global warming, and the whole thing, we're going to all die. God created the earth to outlast a cow fart. Are you allowed to say that? If not, then we'll just go on. But they are the biggest producers of the stuff that's the danger. But God put them here. So you could eat them. And have a cheeseburger. And a steak. And ribs. If you'd like. Well, he didn't put them here so that like a hundred years before he returns, we're going to run out of food. Now what are we going to do? No, the same thing is true. He didn't sacrifice so that at a certain point it runs out. Hebrews 10 says something that might be worthy of looking at. If we've known and believed the love God has toward us, what is the love? It's the payment Jesus made. When we understand the payment Jesus made, we won't have torment before that day or of going to see the Lord. 
I've met Christians over the years that just haven't done things perfect. They just said, I'm so afraid to see the Lord. The reason you're tormented is you don't know. He's going to be like, man, it's so good to see you. And you're going to be like, uh, what about all that stuff? And he's not going to be going, oh, I'm glad you brought that up. I was going to give you a hug first, give you a high five. Then we were going to talk. No, the Bible's interesting on that subject where our works get tried by fire and everything that was done wrong just gets burned, but you get in by salvation. But if you do certain things the right way, then there are rewards. But it doesn't say he brings all this up. Notice this in Hebrews, the 10th chapter, everybody alive still, the 14th verse. And it says, for by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified or set apart. In other words, those who get saved, one offering perfected you, cleansed you, paid the price for you. Notice verse 17. Then he adds their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. Now notice how many times did Jesus die? Okay, one time. Now, there's a lot of types and shadows in the Old Testament. And why did Moses, was God so harsh on Moses for smacking a rock twice? Why? Why he smacked it twice. The Lord said, you strike it one time. And then all the water that the people would ever need will come from there. And he got angry with the people and he struck the rock again. And the Lord said, that did it. You are not going into the promised land. I told you to speak to the rock after. And it would give all the water all the people would ever need. Now remember this. The Bible said that that was a picture of Christ. It said Christ was the rock that followed them. He only had to be struck once. Then water flows freely. Didn't Jesus say, I will be like a well. Salvation will be like a well bubbling up continually. He only had to be struck once. He didn't need to die twice. His payment of once was enough for all, period. Even the ones you haven't done yet, he's already paid for it. Already paid. Notice verse 17, for he adds their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. He won't. Now, where remission or remove, where there is remission, that's different than forgiveness. It literally means an absolute removal of these, where these are remitted or gone, there is no longer an offering for sin. Why did they keep offering sacrifices year after year after year? Because it couldn't get rid of sin. It could only cover it. He did it one time to pay for all of it till he returns. One. That's why he doesn't do it anymore, because he paid the full price. If he paid the full price and you believe the full price is paid, even for the one you did yesterday, then you should realize it's remitted, it's gone because I'm in Christ. I don't have to be tormented about a day when I stand before the Lord because if I believe God's love toward me, that means God did this for me. I don't do this for myself. I don't do this for myself. I can't do this for myself. Nobody can be good enough. 
to do this for themselves. Ephesians 1, 6 talks about how that he has made us by the praise, it says, to the praise of the glory of his grace. Now, I used to read that and think, what in the world? To the praise of the glory of his grace by which we've been made accepted into the beloved. And I'd think, what did he just say? It literally means we praise and give glory for his grace, the glory of his grace. Or in other words, the greatness of his gift. By that gift, he, not you, made you and me accepted into the beloved. You didn't make yourself accepted. That's understanding the love he has toward you. You don't make yourself accepted. He did by his blood. He did that. Everybody alive? Everybody with me? I'm going to read one more. Well, no, I'm not. Romans 8. We need to understand that payment was enough to cleanse you, to be, have the name change, that you'd be called a child of God, that you would be accepted in the beloved, that your sins would be removed, that you would get a new nature inside of you. You're not a dirt bag trying to look good in front of God. He recreated you, the Bible said, when you received him, inwardly. That's why you have to renew your mind to get it in line with how you've been created in Christ once you gave your life to the Lord. And there's a lot of stuff that doesn't help. Badgering people to do right doesn't help. People realizing they've been made new and start thinking right will help. And so Romans 8.31, most of us are probably familiar with this because, well, maybe not. Maybe you weren't around when Bush became president, but he quoted this. And um, notice this. Most of us probably have heard this verse, or some of us have. What then shall we say to these things? Now, it was all the problems of life. If God is for us, and the verses before describe how God justified us or declared us righteous, clean like we never sinned through his blood, if God is for us, who can be against us? He's basically saying, God's on your side. He's backing you. This is understanding God's love toward you. And as a matter of fact, if God is for you, who can be against you is the same context as Exodus 20 when he said, Listen, I'm going to show you how powerful I am, but I'm for you, I'm behind you, I'm with you. And he says that very thing here, I'm for you. Well, but I'm not perfect. Right, that's why he paid to make you clean. It's amazing how many people, when they give their life to the Lord, now you should obey him, you should respond to him, and you should grow with him. But how many people think, well, now I've got to live perfect to be perfect in front of him. Now, he's accepted me. He wants me to grow and put things away, but he cleansed me from the inside out. And when I say that, I mean any person who's given their life to the Lord. So when he says he's for you, this understanding of his love and what he did, even though we're talking about reverencing, respecting having an awe about God, literally 
this kind of fear puts him into perspective correctly. He's for you. He's done something to cleanse you. He's on your side. And I know that some people would hear this and maybe they've read the Bible and they would argue with it. But it's in there. And the only reason we argue with it is because we have maybe some religious ideas that possibly need to be thrown out. We need to realize God is big and powerful. He's not angry. He doesn't look at you and think, you dirty dog. He looks at you as beloved. He paid a huge price for you. He demonstrated his love. When you gave your life to Jesus, if you've done that, you have received his love toward you. You need to realize it paid the price to cleanse you. It paid the price to make you his own. You can leave here knowing I am a child of God if I gave my life to him and he gave me a new nature. In here, not up here in your head. You with me? In here. Old things the Bible said are passed away. Somebody said, I had a bad thought. You want me to tell you a little secret? Me too. Want me to tell you another secret? Jesus had bad thoughts. Somebody might say, oh, this is heretic. Who is this nut? Why do you think the Bible told us that the devil came and tempted him and said, bow down to me. Jesus had a thought come to his mind that said, bow down to Satan. Submit to him. He was really tempted. That means he had a thought come to his mind to surrender and go this way. He didn't. But the Bible says he lived his life and never sinned. So you need to understand just because you're tempted, that means you're sinning? No. No. A thought to sin is not sin. Sin is doing. Jesus had bad thoughts, but he didn't go, I'm such a rotten person. He knew he lived in a hostile world and knew if bad thoughts come, they don't always come from God. They never come from God. I mean, I couldn't think God's going to put a thought in somebody's head when you know his character and he won't change. Bow down and worship the devil. So Jesus had bad thoughts. One man said it like this, you cannot stop birds from flying over your head. But you can stop them from building a nest in your hair or your head if you don't have hair. In other words, thoughts may come through but you don't have to ponder them. You can do what Jesus did. And no, I'm accepted. You know how many people have let that land? I'm not accepted. I'm not as good as this other person. See, the kids got that. That's why you heard that <laughs> cheer. You guys didn't. That would have been a wonderful time to go, well, but no, you didn't. You, you lost, lost out. And I'm not going to go back and repeat it. Just so you can go, okay, it's our turn. Yeah. No, but he has washed us. How many of you know you've given your life to Jesus? Raise your hand. If you know that. If you know that. Well, if you know that, then you believed in God's love. You don't have to question that anymore. 
And not only this, when you accepted Jesus, you accepted his love. You're clean. Somebody said, if you preach like this, people are just going to do whatever they want to. No, people are going to love God and want to do what's right. Because he said, when you get this awe in front of your eyes, remember we read that verse? He said, uh, not just this one, another one. He said the reason they did wrong was they had no fear of God before their eyes. When you really see God and respect him, perspective changes.